0: Our sermon today will be taken from John 17, verses uh, 6 to 19. This is the word of God. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as one as we are. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your, world, your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. says the Lord.
1: Thank you, Andita. Let's pray one more time before we enter into our sermon. Father, uh, we come to you into trying to understand your word, and we can't do that unless your spirit moves and reveals it to us. And Father, uh, I know that um, with the announcements, the pattern or or the flow of worship might have uh, felt like it was broken a little bit, and I pray that you keep us uh, undistracted and that you bring us back again to the story of redemption that our worship service uh, hoped to give, which is that you've created us, but yet we've sinned and fallen, and that you've redeemed us, and that now you deserve all the glory, and all the majesty, and all the worth. Keep us in this story, keep us in this redemptive narrative, that we may as creatures behold what we're meant for, where it is we are to find joy, and whose glory it is we are actually living for. Now as we open your word, help it be real and functional in our hearts as we try and grasp and understand it in our minds, that it would affect our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, we are still in the series of the book of John, and we're going to finish the section of the book in John that we have, uh, or that has been historically called the farewell discourse. Uh, the farewell discourse is John chapter fourteen to seventeen. It's that section of the book of John. And after we're done with this, I think next week is our last uh, uh, sermon in in. Uh, uh, in the book of john uh fourth then we're going to take a break for three weeks we're going to go through a psalm uh, a psalm each week so that'll be a good break i think for us and then we'll jump back again in john chapter 18 and finish the book of john uh, before we start our next series so let me recap what the pharaoh discourse is the pharaoh discourse chapters 14 to 17 is when is jesus's last extensive verbal teaching to his disciples you can say before he's crucified before he dies and he resurrects and he sends back to the father physically leaving uh, his disciples here on earth. That's why it's called the Farewell Discourse. And today, we're in the last chapter of the Farewell Discourse, chapter 17. And chapter 17 really is just a long prayer that Jesus, God the Son, is lifting up to God the Father in front of his disciples for them to hear. Now, let me just quickly say, I know that our sermons in John chapter 17 uh, uh, perhaps have felt and will feel a bit more heady, and a bit more theological than normal. But that's not because we just enjoy making things more complicated, okay? But the nature of the text, it, it, it is hard to understand. So imagine you're sitting at a table, and you're listening in a conversation between two people, and these are two of the leading experts of, say, global macroeconomy, okay? To understand what they're saying, guys, our minds are going to have to require to strain a bit, right our, our eyes are going to have to squint a little bit our brain capacity is going to be challenged because these are the most two knowledgeable people of the field conversing about grand and lofty issues of macroeconomics what we have today is not two leading experts of macroeconomy but god the son praying to or in other words conversing with god the father and we're sitting down trying to understand it they're talking about the grandiest and loftiest issues ever we should expect our heads to be worked a bit. We should expect for our eyes to strain a bit and, and, and our brain capacities to be stretched. That's, that's the nature of it. But I pray that as the truths we find here uh, are understood by our heads, it will truly encourage our hearts and realign our lives back to Him. Okay? So let's get to it. Last week, we talked about the first part of the prayer. The first part of the prayer is verses 1 to 5, where Jesus prays for Himself before He goes to the cross. And today, we're getting to the second section of the prayer, which is verses 6 to 19. It's a big chunk, where Jesus prays not for himself, but specifically for his disciples, his followers. Because, we'll see, that after Jesus dies on the cross and resurrects and ascends back to the Father, his disciples will be left here on earth to face the same world that crucified their Lord. How are they to do that? How are we to live faithfully uh, in a world that is hostile to Jesus and to his gospel message? Well, Jesus here does a few things to encourage us. He reminds uh, disciples of who they are. He he reminds them of how they're supposed to live in this world. And he reminds them of the extent of God's love for them and their identity, who they are, and what their purpose here on earth is. All right, so all of that, let's try and summarize all of that. I want to point out three things. Point one. God's people set apart for the sake of his glory. Point two. God's people set apart to love this world. Point three. A God who sets himself apart for the sake of his people. It's a bit wordy there. Let me repeat it. God's people set apart for the sake of his glory. Nothing else. God's people set apart for this world to love this world. And point three. A God who sets himself apart for the sake of his people. Get to it. Point one. God's people set apart for the sake of his glory. Let's start with verse six. Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, okay, you read this, and at face value, it could sound like there are two groups Jesus is describing. And these two groups are this. One, you look at the middle of verse six, one group are the people who are described as being of the world right worldly people right or in other words we might think these are people who are immoral and irreligious unreligious and they disobey god that's that's one per, group of people the second group of people we might think he's trying to describe is uh, at the end of verse six those who i quote have kept god's word these are the people who we might think are the moral religious people who obey god so those are the two groups that we might instinctively feel that Jesus is talking about when he says, verse 6, that the world is divided to two people. One, unreligious, immoral people who don't deserve uh, a God's love. Two, religious and moral people who do deserve God's love because of their religiosity and their morality. But that is not at all what Jesus is saying. It's actually completely opposite to what Jesus is saying. Let's take a second to think about it. Who crucified Jesus back then? When Jesus talks about, quote-unquote, the world that crucified him, that hated him, who is he talking about? Yes, he's describing people who rejected him, but who are they? Were they unreligious, immoral people? Remember back then in Jesus' day and age, in his world, there were no atheists. There were no people who were unreligious. Who crucified him? The Pharisees did. The most religious and the most moral people that existed. They're the ones that Jesus is referring to. The world, not referring to immoral, unreligious people, the world, the self sufficient religious people who don't think they need a savior because they're good enough. These people crucified me because they thought their religiosity and their morality was enough for them to earn themselves a place as God's people. Okay. So then, if those are if 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 that's the world, who are people who God has taken out of the world and described as his own? Okay? Are they are they religious people who are really moral, maybe more moral than these people? No. Who are his disciples? Who was Peter, Matthew, John, Luke? They were uneducated fishermen. They were social outcasts, tax collectors, They were barely religious at best. They were looked down upon by society. And even when Jesus uh, called them, they mess up all the time. These are the most unlikely candidates to be called God's people. They don't deserve to be called God's people either. So, the world here is divided in verse 6. It's not between religious people who deserve to be God's or unreligious people who don't deserve to be God's. The world here is divided between everyone in the world who does not deserve to be God's people, but yet some people out of this undeserving world, God the Father has by grace plucked out as his own and was given to God the Son. Read the beginning of verse 6 again. I've manifested your name, Father, God the Son says, to who? To the people you have given me. Let me actually read it again. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world in which none of them are deserving. And you remember John 1, this is the whole premise of the whole book that the eternal Son of God who has existed with and equal to the Father from eternity past has entered into the world. He is the light of the world, John chapter 1 says, but yet the world rejected him. The whole world rejected him either by their religion or by their unreligion. So here's what Jesus is saying to God the Father in this prayer. No one in the world deserves to be called God's people. But even then, you, God the Father, you, by sheer grace and mercy, gave, past tense, look at verse 6, gave me, past tense, a long time ago, and if you read verse 5, you'll see it's before the world existed, gave me out of this undeserving world, the most undeserving, social outcast, unlikely candidates to be your people. And that's who we are, Christians. That's what the church is, a group of lowly, undeserving individuals who's just as undeserving as anybody else in the world, the least likely candidates whom God the Father by sheer grace has given unto God the Son before the world was to save. Now, just because it was given to us, that doesn't mean we're not also called to receive it. Of course we're called to receive it. Look at verse 7 to 8. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. They, they received it. It is truly their activity of receiving. We continue and I've come to know in truth that I come from you. It is their active acknowledgement of the truth that God came to save us, that Jesus came to save us. And they have believed that you sent me. It is their act of believing. It is their act of faith. So it's not like we're robots here. Verses 7 to 8, Jesus is saying, um, if you truly receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that is truly your faith. It is your act of belief. But... In verse 6, Jesus is merely opening up the curtains that is often hidden, revealing to his disciples the only reason why you were able to have faith and believe is because, verse 6, God the Father long ago has always wanted undeserving souls like ourselves to be his before the world existed. I'm praying for them. Jesus says in verse 9. Let's continue the passage. I'm praying for them. I'm praying on behalf of God's people. Okay, So praying for God's people is the role of the high priest in the Old Testament. The high priest is the mediator between God and his people. And as one who represents God to his people, Jesus reveals here that that's who I am. That's, I'm the mediator that represents you to God. But notice, who is Jesus representing to God? I, these aren't my words. Who is Jesus representing to God? Look at verse 9. I am not praying for the world. I'm not mediating. I'm not a representative for. I'm not the high priest for the world. Who then, Jesus, do you represent? He continues in verse 9. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Okay. Now, I completely understand how we might be uncomfortable with that. I, t- I get it, because it does seem that God is being a bit unfair, right? Why, why doesn't Jesus represent everyone? It's only fair that Jesus represents everyone. But friends, remember verse 6. Remember the premise of John 1, the premise of the whole Bible. And it's that the whole world has rejected God. God. And the only reason of why Jesus' disciples didn't reject God is because God has plucked them out of the world by grace, by grace, by mercy. Look, we have to understand that mercy and grace by nature are not things that can be demanded. Mercy and grace are not things that can be demanded. What do I mean? If a husband who's been cheating on his wife his whole life gets found out, Can this husband say to his wife, you owe me mercy. You you owe me that. No, he can't. Now, if she's a Christian, eventually after shifting through all the pain, she she might come to a place where she chooses to forgive the husband out of mercy because she herself have received mercy from God through Christ. But my argument still stands that this husband receive mercy from his wife not because he deserved it but because she is gracious enough to give it throughout the bible the world has been described as cheating on god that's what sin is that's what the whole book of hosea is about the creature who was created to worship and enjoy and live for the triune god their creator instead worships enjoys and lives for other things We've cheated on him our whole lives. We don't get to go to God and say, you must represent everyone. You owe us all representation. We demand mercy. It's not fair that you don't give us mercy. No, no. What we deserve is wrath. And if God is to be totally fair he would have had the right to not represent anyone. Because mercy by nature is not something the recipients can demand from the giver. So no, it's not unfair for God to choose who he would represent. What's unfair is that God would even represent one person and that God the Son would even die for one person. That's what's not fair. We Christians, as represented by Jesus' disciples, who he's talking to in John chapter 17, are the undeserving, unworthy, least likely recipients of God's mercy. And even though he knew that if we were left to our own free will, you and I would have joined this world's rebellious stampede and would have never chosen to love him above all things. But yet, by grace, God the Father has plucked you out of your rebellion and given you to God the Son before the world even existed, not because we deserve it, but because of mercy, of grace. You want to talk about core identity? Christian, that's your core identity. That before anything else, this is who you are. It would be an unbelievably healthy daily exercise For a Christian mother to look at her children and remember that before I'm anyone's mother. And for a Christian husband to look at his wife and ponder before I'm anyone's husband. For a Christian child to look at their parents and remember before I'm anyone's child. For a Christian teacher to walk into their classroom and believe that before I'm a teacher. For a Christian CEO to look at their staff and remind themselves before I'm anyone's boss. For a Christian in financial difficulty to look at their bank account and remind themselves that before I'm a person in debt. For a Christian cancer patient to look at the medical report and remember that before I'm a cancer patient. For a Christian who belonged to different churches to remind themselves that before I'm a member of this particular church or that particular church. For a Chinese, Indonesian, American Christian to look at their ethnicity and remind themselves that before I was a part of any particular race, before any of that, I am first and foremost an undeserving candidate whom the triune God from eternity past has mercifully loved as his own, even though if left to my own free will, I would have never chosen him. I don't know any other exercise that is more humbling and sobering than that. And I don't know any other truth that will make us kinder, more patient, joyful, humble, gracious, and grateful human beings. Do you see how little your salvation is actually about you? It is not ultimately about you. Your salvation is to showcase His mercy, it is to showcase His grace. Our salvation is not about making much of our religiosity. It's not about making much of our spirituality. It's about making much of his mercy. That's why at the end of verse 10, Jesus said, I am glorified in them. I am, I am glorified. I am made much of in their salvation. I get the glory from their salvation because their salvation is not a testimony to how great they are, but it's a testimony of how great he is. That's why Jesus says, I'm glorified in their salvation, because I am the eternal planner of it. But it goes further still. He doesn't stop there. God is glorified, not just as the eternal planner of our salvation, but also is the eternal keeper of our salvation. Look at the second part of verse 11. Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Who's going to keep you, Christian? Christian? who's going to make sure you get to the end it is not your strength it is not your grit it is not because you came to church today so you gain more points so that your road to heaven is clearer no he the holy father he's going to keep you to the end his strength his mercy his love one he is holy in other words he's perfect He's without flaw, he's sinless, he's powerful, he's capable to keep you to the end. But not only is he holy, he is father. He is also perfectly patient and loving and paternal and caring to remain upon you until the end. That every single bit, every single second of your salvation, all of that glory goes to him. Well then, we might think, I'm going to the passage here pretty quickly because that's a lot to cover. What about Judas? Right? Some might think, wasn't he part of the discipleship group? Why did he fall away? Did the Holy Father fail to keep Judas? Wasn't he one of Jesus' disciples? Well, outwardly, externally, yes, he was. He looked like one. But in, internally, he never was. It's, it's a really interesting exercise for you guys to read through the book of John and, and, and focus on Judas, and look at the ways in which the book of John depicts him. And if you see that, you'll see that there's hints throughout the book of John about Judas's heart. And it reveals that internally, he was never actually about Jesus. He looked like it. He wore the right clothes. He said the right things. He hung out with the right people. He went to that right place on Sunday mornings. Well, you know. But this whole time, he was actually all about the money. He enjoyed and worshipped money above everything else. You'll see hints of it through the book of John. One, the book of John emphasizes that Judas was the one that is in charge of the group's finances. Not to scare our finances team. And then later you see again Judas rebuking Mary for doing what? When Mary anointed Jesus' head with very expensive oil. Who, Who rebuked Mary? Judas did. That's a waste of money. And at the end, you see Judas selling Jesus out for what? to the pharisees for money see judas might have looked like a disciple he might have talked and walked like a disciple he knew all the sunday school answers but in his heart he lived and worshipped and enjoyed money over anything else more than the triune god he never was a part of god's people so it's not that the holy father failed to keep judas but judas was never a part of god's people in the first place look at verse 12 not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. God, through the scriptures, Old Testament, preempted it. He's not surprised. By the way, the scripture he's referring to here, Psalm 41, verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is not a surprise. The father did not fail in his task. But for those whom God the father has actually truly given to God the son from eternity past... Verses 6 to 7. Rest assured, they will come to know. They will truly believe. They will truly have faith and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Verses 8 to 9. And rest assured, you will be kept eternally as a child of God forever by the loving care of God the Holy Father. Verse 11. If the cross is the main stage that most people see, what Jesus is doing here is he's going back and he's opening the curtains of what the inner workings of God's redemptive story that not many people see. And these words should encourage you. See, I've never been really good at summarizing these grand concepts in like one short, succinct, heartfelt sentence. So let's, I'll just copy and paste from one of the theological giants in the past named Gerhardus Voss. This is how he summarizes God's eternal love for his people as seen behind these curtains. Let me paraphrase it for clarity, uh, and then I'll say what he actually said. I'll paraphrase it and, and give it a time to sink in. It might be a mind twister, but just let, give it a second to sink in. This is what he said as a summary to all this. He says, there will never exist a point in time where God will end his love for us. Because he began to love us before the concept of time even existed. Let it sink in. There will never exist a point in time where God will end his love for us because he began to love us, the Father gave you to the Son, before the concept of time even existed. Let that sink in. Or as Voss literally puts it, the best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. Let that sink in. You don't deserve it, but yet God the Father has eternally given you to God the Son. And because he loved you before the concept of time even existed, he'll never stop loving you after it's long gone. Let that sink in. See, you know that you know this truth when your heart leaps a bit. If the past 15 minutes have merely been a head head exercise for us, then we we haven't understood it or we understood it but we don't really believe it. But if this concept has really sunken in and you do believe it, what's going to happen? You'll have joy. Look at verse 13. What did Jesus say in verse 13? These things I speak in the world because it's interesting facts for them to know. That's not what he said in verse 13. He says, these things I speak in the world, I'm telling them that they may have joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. This should make your heart leap. This is how he's glorified in us. You see, a glorious thing cannot really be glorified until their glory is realized and enjoyed by others. An already glorious athlete is not yet glorified unless their glorious abilities are displayed for the public eye to see and enjoy. The the observers, when LeBron James dunks, and people get up and cheer, and they... see. That, the act of cheering and enjoying in itself glorifies him. We don't actually have to do anything for LeBron James, just enjoy the dunk. (laughs) That The joy in itself glorifies it. Or an artist, a musician, a great musician, a glorious musician is not yet glorified until their glorious songs are broadcasted for the world to hear and enjoy. The the listeners don't necessarily need to to do anything for the musician. They just need to sit there and and relish in the glorious music. That, the act of enjoying in itself, glorifies the musician. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. He's saying, do you not, he's opening up the curtains, and he's saying, do you not see who God is? Enjoy it, Christian. Relish in it. Let your heart leap and the fact that he will never stop loving me because he never began. You've always been an object of his love. You've always been in his mind. Enjoy it. Ascribe unto him glory as you do. And you'll need this joy, Jesus says, because of the task that you have in front of you. Second point, God's people set apart to love this world. Now I want to be careful to not make it sound like glorifying God is merely just an emotional exercise, as if all that the Christians meant to do on earth is to ponder passively upon God's eternal mercy with all the feels, right? That that's not how it works, and that's not how it works when you enjoy anything else either. If you enjoy your spouse, you don't just stare at them all day long with all the feels. That's creepy. That's not how you enjoy your, your spouse. Okay, yes. God is glorified when we enjoy and relish in him, but also when that joy leads us to act for him, which is what verses 14 and 18 hits on. Verse 14. I've given them, the people that you have given me before uh, the world existed. I've given them, these people, that is yours, your word, the gospel. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Look, you don't need to go looking for trouble for the world to be against the gospel message. Just by having joy in Christ, that's enough sometimes to upset the world. Imagine you've been treated unfairly by somebody. You've been wronged, terribly wronged. But yet the world sees a joy and a hope in you that remains, even despite the turbulent times. And they ask, why don't you retaliate back? Why aren't you cussing them out? Why are you so quick to forgive? And then you begin to explain, look, it was really hard for me not to retaliate back. But then I remembered that you and me and everyone else in the world are undeserving, miserable sinners. And we too have offended our holy creator. Yet this glorious God in his eternal mercy has loved us eternally and graciously given us unto his Son, who is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one gets the Father unless it goes through him. How is the world going to take that? Now, you might not say those exact words, but if you truly delight and relish in the gospel and in Jesus, your answer will have some hints of that. That's where your joy is founded upon. What reaction will we get? I have given them your word, your gospel word, so that they may enjoy it and live according to it and preach it. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Nobody wants to hear that they're sinners. Nobody wants to hear that we can't do it. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. You can't do it. That's why I did it for you. They're not going to react well. We didn't react well. Thanks to God and his mercy, he redeemed us. So what do we do? Well, of course we know not to conform our message and water down the gospel, right? So then what do we do? Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Okay, I can't water down the gospel. I can't not preach it. I can't not live it out. But yet, I can't totally separate myself from culture. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. We're not called to make a Christian community out in the middle of nowhere, escaping the world. Okay okay, let me think about this. If I can't conform and if I can't water down the gospel and I can't escape and run away from the world who's hostile to it, I know, we must fight back, right? That's what Jesus wants. He wants us to overtake the world. Indonesia must be ruled by Christian political parties, right? Everything must be explicitly Christian to be legal can't support any business unless it's explicitly Christian values. I won't eat at a restaurant unless I see a Bible verse on the wall. That's, that's what we're supposed to do, right? But then you read verse 18. That's not what we're supposed to do. Look at verse 18. He said, as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. How was Jesus sent into the world by God the Father? Was he sent into the world to pick up the sword and fight people? No but to receive the full blow of the world's hate and be crucified for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of the salvation of his people. Do you see what I mean? God has put us in between a rock and a hard place. He's created us to glorify him. He's created us to find ultimate joy in his gospel, to live it and speak it and enjoy it, but he's also placed us in the world that doesn't want to hear it. And then he says, you can't conform to them. You can't water it down. And then he says, you can't run away. And then he says, you can't fight back. (laughs) So what do we do? If we can't conform or escape or fight, what do you do? You love them. And you bear the cost. And you take it. As I sent my son into the world, so have I sent you. Live and speak according to the gospel. Don't water it down. Winsomely engage with culture. Don't escape it. And when they come pushing back, don't pick up a sword. Pick up your cross and say, do what you must. I will bear it because God is glorified when I do so. Okay. But how in the world is God glorified in that How is God glorified when I take the bare grunt of this world? Well, remember how in point one, the act of enjoying in itself, right? Not necessarily the practical outworkings of our joy, stick with me, but but the simple fact that you're just sitting there and enjoying God's mercy, the emotional relishing in it, that in itself glorifies him, right? The act of enjoyment itself ascribes unto him you are worth enjoying, you're glorious, It's similar here. The cost in within itself, not necessarily the practical results of what the cost might lead to. No, 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 don't go there. Just paying the cost itself, that glorifies him. How? I don't know why I keep going back to marriage analogies, but here's another one. Um, Husbands, when you ask your wife for her hand in marriage, why is that a joyful thing for them? (laughs) Wives, think about the essence of what your husband is saying when he asks for your hand in marriage. He's saying, I love you and I enjoy you so much to where I'll give up the possibility of being married to anyone else in this world. I'll, I'll pay that cost. I'll sacrifice that. Take that away. Because that's how valuable you are to me. Now think about it. The sacrifice in itself, before you actually married, before he actually does anything for you in, in the marital relationship, just that one exchange where he acknowledges to you that you are worth him giving up anyone else for, the sacrifice in itself ascribes unto you, ladies, value and worth, does it not? Sure, the ring helps. But what he's saying, what your husband is saying That's what ascribes so much worth to you. I find you so delightful that I'll give up. I'll bear anything. I'll pay anything. Any other woman in the world for you, I'll give it up. I'll pay that cost because you to me are of my utmost value. In the same way, when we sacrifice for God, we don't escape, we don't water down, we don't fight back, we take it, we pay it. We're sacrificing for God the brunt of the world In the act of the sacrifice itself, we're ascribing glory unto him. We're saying you are of utmost value and I'm willing to give up the world for you and pay whatever cost to accredit unto you the worth that you deserve. You acknowledge the value of something when you're willing to pay for it. You acknowledge the value of something when you're willing to bear the cost for it. That's the task of God's people on earth during their temporary lifetime here, not to escape it, not to fight it, not to water it down, to love them and take it and ascribe them to him. This is your worth to me. See all the other options of conforming or escaping or triumphalistically overtaking. Those are all basically efforts to, uh, to minimize the cost, right? Right? We don't. We don't want to feel the cost, so I want to conform. You know, it's, you know. I guess it's the gospel, or we want to run away from it, or we want to fight them. We don't want to. We don't want to bear it. And God is saying, "Don't do that." By the way, each of us have different ways to do it. Mine's to conform. I often conform. That's how I. Pay. That's how I run away from the cost. God is saying, "Don't do that." Ascribe to me the worth that I am to you. Take it, because I'm that valuable. So summarize. We find here in Jesus' prayer two ways in which God is glorified. First, verse 6 to 13, he's glorified in the act of us enjoying his eternal mercy, emotionally enjoying it. Second, verses 14 to 18, he's glorified in the act of us sacrificing for him, ascribing to him how valuable he is. And it's almost like a cycle, right? The more your heart basks in his eternal mercy and glorify him by enjoying who he is and what he's done for you, although you don't deserve it, the more you do that, the more you're willing to pay and bear the cost for him. Because you don't pay for something you don't enjoy. It's, it's a cycle. The more you glor- enjoy him, the more you're willing to live for him and pay the cost. And it's a cycle. This is what you're meant to be, Christian. This is what you were set apart for. This is the purpose of your existence, to get lost in enjoying and glorifying your God. Joy is found when you get lost in this cycle of glory. Look, the next holiday might help relieve your stress. It might, but it will not be able to bear the weight of joy that your heart demands. You know that. How many good holidays have you been on? Do you still not lack joy? The next paycheck might ease your mind greatly. Yes, I know, but it's not the answer to the thirst your soul has. How many paychecks have you received? Are you still not panting? We've been trying to look for joy apart from getting lost in this glorious cycle that we're meant for. And these joys are momentary and sporadic at best. If you want his joy to be in you, get lost in that. Unveil the curtain. Bask in his mercy. Love the world sacrificially. Keep in that cycle. That's how his joy may be fulfilled in you, as he said in verse 13. On a daily basis, we must find our hearts, find him as most joyful, and, and not things of the world. But yet, we do the opposite. On a daily basis, instead, we find our hearts finding utmost joy in things that are not Him. We find ourselves sacrificing faithfulness to Him and choosing the world rather than Him. That's the reality of it. So, what is God to do with sinners who He wants to love? Yes, He wanted them to be His own from eternity past, but He can't just ignore their sin. Remember how Jesus addressed Him in verse 11? He is Father, yes, but He is also Holy Father. He's perfectly holy God. He cannot be with sin. So the dilemma is, I guess you could say, how can a holy God be a father to sinners? Last point. A God who sets himself apart for the sake of his people. Verse 19. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, I mentioned earlier Jesus' role is to be the high priest for God's people, right? The high priest is the mediator, and the Old Testament is the person who would represent God, God's people to God, and the mediator between God and his people. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus, in verse 19, uses the term consecrate, because the term consecrate is also something that the Old Testament priests had to do before they would go to God on behalf of the people. They'd have to consecrate themselves. To consecrate yourself means that you're setting yourself apart from any blemish and uncleanness right? Because God is holy, holy, holy. He cannot be with imperfection. So if you read the Old Testament temple laws, the high priest, before he goes and represents God's people to God, he had to consecrate himself and set himself apart from everyone else in purity by one publicly bathing, has to be in public. The people have to make sure he's totally clean. And then after that, he was clothed in pure white robe, cannot be one flaw in that robe, has to be flawless. And then he can approach God on behalf of the people. This is what Jesus is saying he did here. He consecrated himself. He set himself apart for our sake. He set himself apart. He consecrated himself not, not by wa- taking public baths or by, by putting a white robe. He consecrated himself. He set himself apart by living a perfect life without blemish, without sin. He, perfectly, he was the only one who has perfectly lived out this glory cycle mentioned earlier of enjoying and sacrificing for God. That's how he set himself apart. Okay. What's often missed is that the act of consecration in the Old Testament temple laws apply not only to the high priest, but also the sacrificial animal that's supposed to be sacrificed. Before the priest enters the temple, after he bathes and after he's robed and after he's set apart, he has to bring a sacrificial animal that is also consecrated, that is also set apart, and you read the Old Testament, this animal cannot, cannot have one blemish in it. Exodus 12, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, referring to the sacrificial lamb that's going to be offered. Deuteronomy 15, 21, but if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Because God cannot be with sin. So friends, this is how Jesus Christ represents you to the Father. Not only as your high priest that mediates between you and God, but also as your sacrificial lamb. He's the priest and the sacrifice. This is how a holy God can become your father, even when you sin and rebel against him, because God the Son perfectly set himself apart by living the life we failed to live and dying the death we deserved, so that a holy God can set apart undeserving sinners like us be his child forever he did that so that you may be consecrated and set apart you've been set apart as his christian to be the beloved child of a holy god that is the reason of your existence you're set apart to fall into this glory cycle by enjoying and choosing him over all things and thus by doing so ascribing glory to him and and you can't do that on your own. You need a mediator and you need a sacrifice. Christ went on the cross, not robed in white gown, not cleanly bathed, was crucified naked, dirted by his own blood so that you can be robed in white splendor, in his righteousness, and you can be washed clean because God the Father has always wanted you to be His before the world was. And that's the only thing that's going to keep you faithful in falling into this glory cycle. Remind yourself of that. Now, if you don't find God as your supreme joy by the end of this sermon, don't get too upset and cast down. The sermon's about the end, and I'm not there either. So if you're a slow learner like me, look at verse 17. How can we continually grow? How can we grow in this this glory cycle by exposing ourselves to this gospel word of truth over and over and over again? That's how you're sanctified. That's how you grow. So here's what Jesus is saying. Peek behind these curtains daily. Expose yourself to his word, the gospel truth, daily. Come to gospel-centered worship services and preaching Take communion when you're at church, as it represents God's uh, Jesus' flesh broken for you and His blood shed for you. Go to gospel exposing community groups. Do whatever you need to do to keep those curtains peeled back, because the world will divert your eyes from it, and it'll tell you that you are other things rather than that. That's how you remain in the cycle of glory. in hope. That the eternally merciful Father you find behind those curtains will become your supreme joy and will always be the one you choose over anything else, no matter the cost, for the sake of His glory and for the sake of your joy. Let's pray. Father, divine words were spoken between you and your son in this exchange in John 17. The finite mind has questions. The finite mind can't fully grasp it. But Lord, you have revealed who you are in your scriptures and you have given us a glimpse of the divine love and mercy that you have for your people and of how undeserving we are and of how we are not anything different than the rest of the world. Unless it is by your sheer grace in which no one can demand. Because we have all sinned and have left to our own free will. would choose to abandon you and live for ourselves. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whomever should believe in him will have eternal life because we have been set apart as yours before the world was, which is the proof that will be yours after this world ends. This is who we are. Let us relish in it now as we sing of your glorious mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.